Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we are going to focus on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 30 through 36, and the book of Lamentations. The Come Follow Me manual only assigns chapters 1 through 3, but we're going to look at the entire book, which is really only five chapters, for the dates October 17th through the 23rd. And just a content warning before we get started, we will be discussing topics such as suicide, homophobia, child abuse, and sexual assault. So if we go ahead and look in the book of Jeremiah, even though the Come Follow Me manual only assigns a handful of chapters, the book of Jeremiah goes on to chapter 52. And although we're not going to be covering all of these chapters, in essence, the second half of the book of Jeremiah continues to critique the spiritual practices of the Israelite people and then tracks their history before, during, and after the Israelite conquest by the Babylonians. And if we try and remember from last week, the book of Jeremiah contains prophetic writings that include both strong critiques of the hypocrisy, idolatry, and worship of other contemporary gods that are present in the Israelite spiritual and religious practices of the time, but also prophesy that the divinely ordained consequences of these various practices would include conquest and captivity. And in the second half of the book, we begin to see the Israelite resistance to these critiques from Jeremiah. Yeah, we'll cover that resistance in a little bit. But before we move on, I really wanted to focus in on one of my favorite chapters in this book, um, and it is chapter 23. And in this chapter, there contains a huge, like very scathing critique of religious institutions and prophets. So I want to just kind of look at that and see uh, see what we see in chapter 23. Um, like I said, a strong critique of prophets within the religious institution of the time. There are a couple of specific behaviors that, uh, well, yeah, a couple of specific behaviors of the prophet that Jeremiah addresses in this chapter. So I wanted to kind of look at them in the context of the chapter and the time that they are written in, but also look at these different behaviors to see what relevance they offer to the modern day reader. The first behavior that we see Jeremiah really strongly critiquing starts in the very first verse of this chapter, and it is scattering the sheep. Chapter Verse 1 starts by saying, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. 
verse 2 says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, end quote. And when I read this verse, I immediately thought about our LGBTQ plus siblings in the LDS church. Words like destroy and scatter and driven away and not visited really seem to resonate with a lot of the pain and hurt that we are hearing coming from the Mormon LGBTQ plus community. In my research, I came across a dialogue journal essay titled The LGBTQ Mormon Crisis, Responding to the Empirical Research on Suicide, written by Michael Barker, Daniel Parkinson, and Benjamin Knoll. And in this essay, the authors explore the correlating factors between adolescent suicide and homelessness in Utah with the anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric in the LDS institution and community. The authors write, quote, Utah's doubling of teen suicides in the past four years corresponds to increased rhetoric by the LDS Church against same-sex marriage. As As noted above, data from the CDC show that suicides in the 15 to 19 age range in Utah have doubled since 2011. While Utah doubled its rate of suicides among teens, the rest of the country did not see a substantial increase in their suicide rate. Suicide has become the leading cause of death in this age group in Utah. Of course, correlation does not prove causation, but it is important to look at correlating factors to determine which of these might explain causation. The time frame for this doubling of teen suicide does correspond to an increased focus in the media on LGBTQ issues, especially in Utah as the debate on same-sex marriage played out. That clearly led to a backlash, including frequent church statements criticizing same-sex marriage or the LGBTQ community. It stands to reason that these statements have reinforced conflicts within congregations and families over the issue and and has unleashed an increase of demonstrated homophobia and anti-LGBTQ feelings within families. It can easily be inferred that this chain of events exacerbated family rejection and vulnerable LGBTQ teens, thereby increasing their risk of suicide attempts, end quote. So in summary, the authors are stating that there is a clear correlation between anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric within the LDS institution and communities and the increased rate of suicide among adolescents in the state of Utah. And so it's really hard to hold these findings from the Center for Disease Control and also from these authors of the dialogue essay Um, And this verse that basically critiques leaders of this religious institution for scattering, driving away, um, not visiting, and destroying the sheep of this fold. And so I do think that that's a quite scathing um, critique there. So when we see that prophets and apostles continue to isolate and condemn LGBTQ individuals with harmful talks given over the pulpit and their advocacy in partnership with other organizations under the guise of pro-family and religious freedom legislation, they are scattering, driving away, and destroying God's sheep. 
And in, in this line of thinking, in this context, we also would really recommend following our friend Kate Maurer on Instagram. You can find them under their handle at Latter Day Les. And um, Kate has done extensive research on the church's relationship with an anti-LGBTQ movement globally, specifically with an organization called the World Congress of Families. And we also really recommend listening to their episode um, with their Call to Queer podcast titled Anti-LGBTQ Plus Legislation Around the Globe. There is a bit of like healing balm that the text follows up these verses with. And about this section in particular, Jeremiah slash God says, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries and bring them again to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Which is quite a lovely verse that really focuses on a God who welcomes, who sustains, who sees and comforts and tries to bring everyone together in safety and love. Absolutely, absolutely. So the second behavior or activity of these prophets that we see Jeremiah critiquing in chapter 23 is the condoning of unrighteous behaviors of their people. In chapter 23, verses 9 through 11, we read, quote, Mine heart within me is broken because of the prophets. For the land is full of adulterers, and because of the swearing the land mourneth. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, and their course is evil. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. End quote. And there are two modern day issues that really stick out to me in this verse. The first is the condoning of immoral behavior of a sexual nature, and the second is a condoning of willful ignorance of climate change. So kind of addressing that first issue, the condoning of immoral behavior of a sexual nature, I cannot help but remember the title for the recent Associated Press article. I think it really says it all. It says, the title says, Seven Years of Sex Abuse, How Mormon Officials Let It Happen. And you know, this Associated Press article has been making huge, huge waves in the LDS community. It's been quite controversial, um, but is so necessary. It's a really necessary expose about what has been happening in our religious institution and how abuse almost seems to flourish within the walls of the church. And what I found really most striking about the most recent sessions of General Conference in October 2022, um, Russell M. Nelson, the prophet, gave a talk that briefly mentioned um, abuse. And we can imagine that this is in response to the Associated Press article. And in this talk, um, he said, quote, the Savior will not tolerate abuse. And as his disciples, neither can we. And um, Russell M. Nelson also argued that the church has been working in favor of abuse victims by providing resources and education for its members. And unfortunately, um, my experience as a child abuse survivor who was active during both my abuse and afterwards, my experience has shown me up, down, and all around that this is the statement, while it's well-intentioned, is a flat-out lie. It's not true. For the majority of my membership in the church, the resources and support for abuse survivors were nearly non-existent. 
the best resources that I had at the time, like trying to heal from my abuse. And this is like the 2010s to like late 2018, 2019. The best resources that I had was one problematic talk from Richard G. Scott that specifically addressed abuse and one quite well-written article from an issue of The Enzyme that was written in the 1980s. In my lived experience, there was no support for me within the church. In my lived experience, the church has always protected the perpetrator. And so abuse, at least from my perspective, has always been more than tolerated in the LDS church. It's actually been fostered and ripening within its carpet-covered walls. So I really like latched on to this verse that we find in chapter 23 because I think that there is a lot to be said for um condoning immoral behavior that's happening within our religious institution, not addressing it, not making sure that perpetrators are held to a standard of responsibility and accountability, not ensuring that there are clear avenues for reporting, um, for education, for our clergy members. There needs to be change within the institution. Otherwise, the critique that we find in chapter 23, verses 9 through 11, absolutely apply to the LDS religious institution. And the second piece of this verse that really focuses on like a critique of not paying attention to our environment and a critique of poor management of climate change There has been a general lack of concern about the growing issues associated with the climate crisis. And as with most political issues, the church, for the most part, refuses to take any type of official standpoint on the issue. And this refusal has resulted in a general lack of awareness and a lack of willingness to to participate in conservation efforts, both institutionally and in the general membership of the church. Of course, it is worth mentioning the recent movement toward climate awareness and action in the most recent October 2022 General Conference, because there was a talk by Bishop Gerald Cosse titled Our Earthly Stewardship. And it's not often that we can recommend a general conference talk with pure (laughs) enthusiasm, but this is one. So we really encourage people to read or listen as you're able. Yeah, if you need a general conference highlight, that is a safe one that you can just, you know, hold on to as you navigate uh, climate crisis conversations with your um, fellow Mormon-adjacent related friends. (laughs) Another verse that sticks out to us and kind of takes a more individual personal critique is it's not just the critique of the community that is participating in these like unrighteous behaviors, but it's also the priests and the leaders in the community who are participating in this unrighteous behavior themselves. So in verse 14, we have, in verse 14, it says, I have seen also the prophets of Jerusalem, a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of the evildoers, that none doth return from his wickedness. They are also of them unto me as Sodom and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. So not only do the prophets condone immoral behavior for the people, they also participate in that same behavior. And we want to specifically address the Sodom and Gomorrah reference and 
quickly remind our listeners to reference our episode that we did for that section of the text back in February of this year titled The Salty Women of Sodom. It's a really fantastic episode. Yeah, Yeah. a listener favorite. (laughs) Yes, and we explored scholarship and exegesis, which offer a really compelling argument that the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were not homosexuality, as is so like frequently interpreted in conservative circles, but the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is inhospitality or the unwillingness to recognize and welcome the stranger, the other, and people who are unfamiliar and different from us. This inability to recognize other people and welcome them as equally whole, good, and worthy of love and belonging. The unwillingness to embrace radical compassion, forgiveness, and acceptance are transgressions against the commandments of God, for which Sodom and Gomorrah is at fault. Finally, the last few critiques of behavior that we see Jeremiah um, bringing up in chapter 23 is kind of this definition and critique of false prophecies. We see this in verses 16 through 17 and also in verse 32, which read, quote, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They say unto everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. I am against the prophets, them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness, end quote. And honestly, reading this, it's just, it's so scathing, right? Like it's so, gets right to the heart of talking about um, the actions and also the lack of action um, that we see in this community, by the leaders in this community. It really reminded me of times that I've seen this similar kind of behavior happen within my own religious institution. Some of the things that really stick out to me in these verses are they speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They walketh after the imagination of their own heart. And I think of times where, you know, we've read in the Doctrine and Covenants about prophecies about the saints uh, moving into Utah and making the desert blossom as a rose. And they just come as if this land is uh, completely uninhabited and totally like theirs for the taking. When in truth, when the pioneers arrived to Utah, they committed genocide against the indigenous people who were present in this land and took, stole the land from those people. And so whose whose dream is it really um, to commit genocide and land theft against indigenous people who rightly own and belong to this land? Is that, is that? the dream and the prophecy of the Lord, or is that an imagination of our own heart? And I also am thinking about ways too that modern day leaders within the church condone through rhetoric or political standings or allowing conversations to happen in their own conversations that really center and almost worship like an idol systems of exploitive systems like capitalism, um, nationalism, that really conflate these really dangerous and harmful ideologies with the gospel of Jesus Christ and weaponize them um, thinking that, you know, being an American 
and being a Christian and being these things are what make you a true um, godly, righteous person without needing to take any accountability for the harm that happens um, because of those ideologies in our in our communities. So this chapter 23 is just, I, honestly, I really loved reading it. It really stuck out to me. And I'm disappointed that the church didn't assign it for um, readings this week. But, you know, I kind of understand why. So... <laughs> Because it is a condemnation of the institution. (laughs) Right. Oh, oh, okay. So as the Israelites have moved back into Egypt, we come into chapter 43. And um, as promised in last week's episode, there's a little bit more reference here to the Queen of Heaven um, character. If you want a little bit more information about who that is and um, for anyone like in the Heavenly Mother, like thought bubble, um, there's more information in that episode for you, but there, but like we said before, there's some opportunity here to discuss uh, potentially some heavenly mother aspects or um, aspects or archetypes, um, specifically ones that come up around goddess worship, the figure of Asherah, and um, the erasure of goddess worship practices in the Israelite community. But for today, what we're feeling is a little bit more compelling is what's happening um, in the narrative of the texts. So in the beginning of chapter 43, I think we actually encounter a little bit of lament from, from God and from Jeremiah. We can hear it in some of the, the words and the verses that we come across. For example, in verse 3, we read, quote, They have provoked me to anger in that they went to burn incense and serve other gods whom they knew not, end quote. So it's almost like hearing God say, like, they don't, they don't know these other people. They, they left me to go to someone new and unfamiliar, and I, I thought I was supposed to be their home. In verse 4, we hear God saying, quote, How be it, or how is it, that I, God, sent unto you all my servants the prophets, sending them, saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate, end quote. And basically, God is saying, like, and you still did it. Like, I... I said over and over and over again, don't do this thing because I hate it. It super bothers me. And you still did it anyway. Throughout this first section of chapter 43, we hear again and again, almost um, like reading between the lines, God kind of saying, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten all of the promises that we made to each other? Have you forgotten the things that I've done for you and what I want you to do for me? And um, throughout this this first section of chapter 43, I really am feeling a lot of empathy towards the character of God here. Um, I can recognize some of myself in these verses, and I'm reminded of things that I've said in my relationships and also things that I've said um, in and to my faith community. These are verses that communicate a pain point, and I'm picking up on a little bit of fear around abandonment from, you know, God's words here. So I recognize, I'm I'm recognizing in myself that the text is inspiring a bit of compassion for God um, in this first part of the chapter. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's a really nice, like, personal and super compassionate mm-hmm, reading of, mm-hmm. of God, of the God character here. But as we move further into the chapter in verses 16 through 18, we get a bit more of the story. The people answered Jeremiah, who was speaking for God, saying, 
As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us, we will not listen, but we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven to pour and to pour out drink offerings to her as we have done and our fathers have done and our kings have done and our princes in the city of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. So in other words, like we're going to continue to do these things that we've always done in broad daylight. And when we did this, quote, we had plenty of food and resources. We were well and we saw no evil. But since we stopped, we have lacked these things and have been consumed by the sword and by famine, end quote. And this is really quite compelling. It's it's incredibly difficult to argue with lived experience and the people are sharing their lived experience here. I think in Christianity, we are taught not only that the worship of other gods is unrighteous because it betrays the capital G God, but also because it's like foolish and because these other deities are not real or efficacious. With that perspective, it's easy to read this portion of the text almost laughing at these people who can be made to sound like whiners, like entitled children, or like murmurers and complainers who are deceived and misguided or ignorant and stupid for worshiping other gods because Christians are taught that there is no other god. But I think the question that we're holding as we're reading this portion of the text is, what if the people are right? What if their lived experience is real? Yeah, and then how does that question, what if they're right, what if this lived experience is real, how does that question change the way that we read and interpret the text? We might ask questions like, what does this experience say about God, whose people feel that they are being cared for better by another deity? Is it a statement about God? Is it a statement about the people? I don't I don't know. It'll depend on the lens that you read the text through. One of the interpretations that um, I've personally appreciated as we've moved through the Hebrew Bible, and I think we mentioned this like way early, early, early on in this year of the podcast, is the concept of the Hebrew Bible kind of tracking the growth and change of God stepping into their role as God. Um, deity, their role as God. So we kind of get to watch over the the course of the Hebrew Bible, God growing and changing and really coming into their own um, and learning how, how to be God. And so um, we're learning throughout the text and we're kind of seeing God trying things out and learning what they can and can't do, what God values and what works and what doesn't. Um, and one of the interpretations that feels helpful and hopeful to me here in chapter 43 is reading this as another learning opportunity for God. Like I can imagine it's not fun, uh, for a deity to hear like, Hey God, we know you're asking for stuff, but honestly, like since we did what you said, we have not been okay. We've been starving, we've been dying and we're afraid. And we're noticing that when we were spending time with other gods, this wasn't happening. So like, what do you want from us? (laughs) And like, I also have to note, like, I, I'm a little bit biased in this. Like, I personally don't believe that there's only one God. And I don't actually think that this would be alarming to most LDS people because we also in our theology don't believe that there is only one deity. Um, And I don't even believe that the one God in the Hebrew Bible and other canonized texts in the LDS tradition is like a totally perfect being and is undeserving of examination or critique. 
I just want to acknowledge that bias in case some of our listeners are confused about where I'm coming from. For me, I totally believe that the Queen of Heaven is real, whoever they are. And I trust the Israelites' lived experience with this figure, with the Queen of Heaven. And I trust their interpretation of that lived experience, primarily because of my feminist ethic. And that feminist ethic first values lived experience and its interpretation as equally valid information. And as equally valid information, just like theological and institutional knowledge. And second, my feminist ethic values the lived experience and voices of women who are speaking in the text. We hear right from women in the text. They're the primary people in this practice. In verse 19, it says, And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her, did we make her cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings unto her without our men? We see women are taking full responsibility here, and honestly, we are hearing them confront God directly in these verses that we've outlined here today. These women spoke strongly to Jeremiah, saying, No, we know what we know. We feel what we feel, and we're going to keep doing what we've been doing because it is working for us. And that really takes strength for this marginalized group to speak out and on behalf of themselves. And we don't really think it should be discounted simply because the traditional interpretations of this chapter contextualizes these women's self-advocacy in the context of unrighteousness. Yeah, absolutely. So even though we, we hear these women saying like, hey, this, this worship practice is actually really working for us, um, Jeremiah interprets the whole situation differently and in essence tells the people that they are wrong and that the violence and destruction and suffering that happens after they stop worshiping the queen of heaven, it didn't happen because they stopped. It happened because God is punishing them for even starting to worship other deities in the first place. Um, in response, In the final verses of chapter 43, we hear Jeremiah slash God dole out more prophecy and punishment in response to this um, woman-led defiance. In verse 27, we read, quote, I will watch over them for evil and not for good. All in Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine. And then to make like extra good sure that all of you know that I'm totally serious, me, God, I'm going to make sure that Egypt also gets conquered by the Babylonians. And so, at least for me, like, reading the text and uh, going through chapter 43, like, there's a part of me, a big part of me that feels really disappointed in God's response um, in chapter 43. I just have such a hard time, and it's been a hard time for me uh, throughout the Hebrew Bible, just, like, really taking the chance to notice this particular God's proclivity to war, conflict, and anger, and that God's conflict resolution strategies are things like flood the world and set cities on fire and send plagues and incite war and genocide. So there's a part of me too, where, you know, alongside that compassion that I was mentioning earlier in the chapter, I also am noticing like a little bit of frustration and uncertainty and even a little bit of fear and suspicion of the extremity of God's response here at the end of the chapter. So it's definitely a tension point, like holding both like a respect and an admiration and like compassion and empathy for this um, God figure that we're seeing in the text, while also, you know, simultaneously saying like, "Uh, I'm not totally sure that that's like totally in alignment with my values. So um, yeah, just really really fantastic chapter there in chapter 43. Moving into the book of Lamentations, this is a book of poetic laments about the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And I think that what we want to do is focus on different ways that we might approach the Book of Lamentations. It's only five chapters, and it's quite a poetic read. So we encourage people to read them. And depending on where you feel called to, you might approach this book in one of these three different ways that we're going to outline. So the first way that you could look at the Book of Lamentations is looking at every different chapter as a different stage in grief and grieving. This idea comes from the article Good Grief, a Psychological Reading of Lamentations by David J. Reimer, who follows the famous and really influential work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross regarding death, dying, and grief. And the author makes the argument that we can read each chapter of Lamentations as a different stage of grief. So, for example, chapter one is really all about isolation, especially when we see the first verse saying things like, how lonely sits the city. This chapter talks about lovers who used to be there, but have now gone. Friends who have become enemies. We see no one showing up to these feasts, and everyone passes her by, her being um, Israel or Zion. Everyone passes her by and pays no attention to her. Moving into chapter two, we can kind of read this through the lens of the anger stage of grief. We see the text in the first verse of chapter two say, how hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger, end quote. In this chapter, we see the anger of both God and Zion. We see the words swallow and destroy appear five times in this chapter. We also see wrath, devouring, a pouring out of fury like fire, terror, and consuming. So that's some really strong language that we typically associate with anger showing up in chapter two. And then if we move into chapter three, we see bargaining, making bargains with God if God will be on our side. For example, verses one through 18 really catalog this first person experience of misery. And then in 19 through 21, we kind of see the text or the writer of the text transitioning to a phase of, or a sense of hope. In verses 22 22 through 48, we see God's steadfast love showing up in the text. And finally, in verses 49 through 66, we read a lot of lament, but in this perspective, God is on the side of the sufferer. So throughout chapter three, we see this transition from hopelessness to hope by pondering or thinking about or meditating on God's character. We see this transition from God is no longer the enemy, but the ally in the text. And then chapter four is really, it's quite gloomy. It's really this kind of depressive low point in the book of Lamentations. The first line of the chapter says, how is the gold become dim? And the dominant feature of the content is reversal. Like what was once precious and good and vital has become worthless and spoiled and lifeless. The author writes, quote, in Kubler-Ross's experience, depression is accompanied by loss of self-esteem, independence, and personal comfort, and ultimately by a loss of hope and a loss of sense of meaning in reflection on the past, end quote. And in chapter four, there is no prayer of hope or plea or gratitude in this chapter. Everything is awful. And then finally, in chapter five, the kind of last stage of grief is acceptance, This might sound like Zion saying, remember, O Lord. And so it's not necessarily a stage that is like, oh, I feel so fantastic that there's this like small and simple resolution. And instead, I think this chapter actually pushes back on the acceptance of one situation. It's not happy or pleased or resolved. Rather, 
chapter five is a really scathing critique and blame and hopelessness toward God. And this is anything but acceptance. It's a real stubborn demand for God to see the suffering and to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a beautiful way to read the book of Lamentations and examine all of the different ways that it offers a commentary on grief and all of the different ways that um, grief can show up in our own lives. Oh, such a good Mm -hmm. find. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Another way that we might consider approaching the book of Lamentations is like to offer a post-colonial approach to the book of Lamentations and to the act of lament itself. We found an article by Al Tizon titled Postures Toward Postcolonial Peace, Repentance, Forgiveness, and Lament. And in the article, Tizon recounts an experience where they were asked to open this like community development consultation in South Africa to set the tone for a week of like partnership building, presentations, and activities. Of this, Tizon writes, quote, At the risk of beginning the event with a downer, I led the participants, comprised of both African and North American Christian workers, in a time of communal lament. It did not feel right in a gathering on partnership and development to gloss over the history of colonialism and the part that the Western church played in it, and which undoubtedly the African participants continued to experience in one form or another. I named the Western church's centuries-long collusion with the colonial project by way of the missionary enterprise— I offered an opportunity to lament the colonial past together, end quote. And from the article, we wanted to share the communal post-colonial lament that Tizon is referring to. The lament begins by referencing Lamentations chapter 1, verses 16. For these things we weep, our eyes flow with tears. For the brokenness of humanity that enables one people to think of itself as superior to others. For the tremendous loss of life and the dehumanization of black and brown peoples all over the world. For the extinction of beautiful indigenous cultures as part of the colonial project. For the church's collusion with the coercion, violence, and indignities of colonialism. For the church's violent evangelism among indigenous peoples, violating the love of the gospel. And for how the colonial legacy continues in different forms today. Have mercy on us, O Lord, and empower us to sin no more and to champion the justice and peace of the gospel. I think that this post-colonial approach to the Book of Lamentations is really, really important because the Book of Lamentations, the thing that this book is lamenting is the lament of the conquering and colonialism of Babylon. Like Babylon has conquered Mm -hmm. and destroyed and overtaken uh, the Israelites, right? It has overtaken Jerusalem. And so the lament stems from a colonial experience. And I think the lament is both sad and grieving, but it's also a heavy critique. The third and final way that we can read the book of Lamentations is through a feminist interpretation. As we've seen and talked about in the book of Jeremiah and elsewhere, Zion is often portrayed as a woman bride or daughter who has betrayed God or her husband or father through the wickedness of worship, through wickedness and the worshiping of other gods. In Lamentations, the image of the daughter of Zion is especially on display. In an article titled, Hiding Behind the Naked Woman in Lamentations, a recriminative response by Darren Guest, we learn the following, that Zion is an isolated woman, that she is publicly displayed, naked, and humiliated. She is raped, especially if we note the 
especially if we note the sexual violation in chapter 1 verse 10, where the word hand is used euphemistically for the penis and is spread over her desirable things and the nations enter her sanctuary. So this is like quite vivid imagery that is um, describing a case of rape here. We also see that this Zion woman is ignored. She suffers physical and mental abuse. She is betrayed and bemoans the fact that her lovers have left her to cope with the disaster alone. She is bereaved and is likened unto a widow, which indicates her loss of protection from the male patron deity. The author of this article argues that the image of the Zion woman should be, res should be resisted because it encourages a stereotypical view of women and supports abusive punishments. It's important to remember that this is not an isolated image that exists separate from the, quote, real world. The image of the Zion woman is drawn from real conditions and beliefs that punishments can and should be enacted upon women in general, and adulterous women specifically. Many may argue that this metaphor was powerful because it humiliated a nation enough to convince them to return to the covenant relationship with God. However, this perceived effectiveness has a high cost. It could only be deemed effective by exploiting the shared idea of a fickle woman who gets what she deserves. Guest, the author, writes, quote, In resisting this metaphor of Jerusalem, the adulterous city, we are resisting the patriarchal worldview which provided and provides such ammunition and easy targets. We opt to side rather with those marginalized women of the past who had been unable to resist the creation of this metaphor and unable to escape the realities of their world, which enabled it to be formed, end quote. Rabbi Dr. Melanie Landu takes kind of a different approach to the imagery in the Book of Lamentations. So instead of fighting against the images of female humiliation and victimhood, she enters into the pain of the text and uses it as an opportunity to explore, quote, her own lived experience of this breach of the feminine and to allow ourselves to be with it inside our own bodies and experiences. This includes allowing ourselves to grieve and mourn it and then to let that mourning connect us back to the destruction of Jerusalem and the breach of the Jewish people, end quote. In this way, Landu feels, names, validates, and expresses the wound. And I think that there's also something to be said about the vocal dialogue and pushback of the Zion woman in these chapters. She is talking back to God, too. She is lamenting. It's not only God and Jeremiah. We do get moments where Zion is voicing her distress. And I think we'd just like to end this portion of the episode by reading a kind of a longer passage from pastor and author Nadia Bowles-Weber, whom we love. And Weber writes, quote, There's quite a strong tradition in the Old Testament of complaining to God about injustice and suffering. It's lamenting, and we should perhaps reclaim this part of our tradition. I love the way some of the characters in the Old Testament really have it out with God, how they confront the Almighty. It's downright argumentative. These days, if we are angry with God, we just give God the silent treatment. But not so with our ancestors in the faith. If they felt there was some serious, neglectful, abusive, or absentee parenting from God, they, you know, complained. And their complaints were not a sign of faithlessness. Quite the opposite, really. Their complaints were a sign that they took God's promises seriously. We don't seem to have retained that part of the life of faith very well. 
Maybe our society's general lack of covenant-keeping diminishes the power of promises these days. We don't trust the promises of the government. We don't trust the promises of public schooling. We don't trust the promises of each other, and we certainly don't trust the church. So it's understandably acceptable to just walk away when things get hard. When we no longer enjoy our partners, our cars, our sneakers, we just dispense with them and get something better. So maybe it's no surprise how easy it is to also dispense with God when things get tough, rather than just having it out like Jeremiah, as though it's impolite or impious to remind God of God's promises, to say something like, You promised, and all evidence points to the fact that you, God, are not following through. End quote. I love that kind of more active, aggressive, argumentative reading of the Book of Lamentations, and I think that that's still, that would still fall within the realm of feminist interpretation. So whether we are critiquing the Zion woman um, uses of humiliation and abuse, whether we are witnessing and lamenting alongside her, or whether we are looking at her as argumentative and pushing back on God, these are three wonderful ways to offer feminist interpretations of the Book of Lamentations. Oh, so beautiful. Such a fantastic way to look at the Book of Lamentations. And also, so proud of us for making it through the Book of Jeremiah and making it through the Book of Lamentations, fin finishing out those really, really big ones. Um, thank you again for joining us. Next week, we'll move on. I think, I think next week we're into Ezekiel. So... Um, we're moving on to some more of the minor prophets and see what treasures those books have and hold for us. But until then, we love you so, so much. Thanks for being here today, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye! Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends. Bye.